Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, and we'll be in chapter number 10 tonight. Zechariah chapter number 10. As I mentioned last week, uh, the last few chapters of Zechariah are packed with a lot of good news because they're all about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ and then the millennium and so some really good stuff. I, as we've gone through the minor prophets, you've, you've always looked forward to getting to the end of, end of the books because that's where the good stuff is. But uh, as we'll see Sunday, uh, it's all here for a purpose. Uh, the Bible is bitter and it's sweet. There's some parts that are really sweet, like the end of these chapters, and there's some parts that are really bitter. And we, we're, in, we're in, for, in store for some great blessings in the future. But, but in the meantime, there are a lot of people who, at this point, if the Lord was to return, would not be recipients of those blessings. They would be perish and be destroyed forever in, in hell, and we don't want to see that happen. And that's why you got the first parts of these chapters. So, so uh, we want to be reminded here as we look at all of this to, to not just look at all the good things that, that are that are in store for Israel and for the church, but also uh, there's going to be a lot of people that miss out, and we don't want to see that happen if we can help it. So we want the Lord to use us in, as, we, as we live out our days in these end times. Uh, last week, uh, we finished in chapter 9, and uh, uh, the Lord was talking about the millennium, and actually verse number 1 of chapter 10, if I was to... Be, if I was the uh, the translator of this 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 Bible as we have it, and I think most scholars would agree, verse one should be the last verse in chapter number nine because it really goes with what that last uh, part, verse seventeen. How great is its goodness, and how great is its beauty! Grain shall make the young man thrive, and new wine the young women. And so we were talking that we were talking there at the end of chapter nine about the millennium. And as we go into chapter number ten, verse one, we continue on with the theme of the millennium, and then we're going to go back a little ways. So, so really, it, it just doesn't make sense the way it's got set up. So, uh, anyway, verse number one probably belongs in chapter number number nine. But but let's look at verse number one of Zechariah chapter ten. It says, I "Ask the Lord for rain." In time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. That's a millennial promise. I mean, Israel is a place where, where uh, you don't see much rain. In fact, you study the history of Israel, and it was a, so on several occasions, God withheld the rain as judgment on that nation. And if you were to go there today... They still don't get the kind of rain that that we're that the Lord is talking about here that they're going to get uh, in the millennium. In the millennium, hey, they're not only are they going to get the early rains, they're going to get the latter rains. They're going to get the rains in the spring, and they're going to get the rains in the fall. They're going to get the rains whenever they need the rains. One of the things that I'm really excited about in the millennium, if I get placed in Lafayette, we won't get all the rains. They're going to get some of that rain. Uh, I get tired of the rain, but won't it be? Won't it really be cool? I mean, God controls the weather now. 
but for different purposes now. In the millennium, the, all the weather is going to be there to bless us. I believe there will be snow, there will be rain, but it won't be the kind of snow that buries you in your house. It'll be the kind of snow that you have, you know, where you get five or ten inches and the next day maybe it's gone. You, you get enough rain to make the crops grow. You get the rains when you need the rains, and then the skies clear up, and you got these beautiful blue skies. I mean, you have beautiful blue skies in Arizona, but they don't get any rain. You got beautiful blue skies in, in Israel, but they don't get enough rain. Here we get a few days of blue skies and lots of rain. Well, in the millennium, all of that's going to be worked out. I mean, listen to what, how Joel speaks about these, these rains in in uh, chapter 2, you remember this when we were in Joel. He says, be glad then. He's, he's talking about the millennium. Uh, I know there are a lot of, uh, uh, well, I don't know how to word this, Pentecostal pastors who talk about this being a prophecy of a great revival in Israel uh, just before the Great Tribulation. That's not true at all. Because you can date the, the revival that takes place in Israel when you get to Zechariah chapter 12 and it talks about the Lord poured out, pouring out his spirit on Israel as the Lord's feet lands on the Mount of Olives, and then he pours out his spirit on the people of Israel. That revival is not going to take place until the Great Tribulation is over. And so uh, what is being spoken of here is not some revival during the Great Tribulation. It's, it's a revival or really literal rains that take place uh, in the millennium. And I think there's a spiritual application too. We'll look at that in a minute. But in Joel chapter 2, verses 23, let me, beginning in verse 23, let me read to you what we looked at back then. He says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you in the former rain, the latter rain in the first month. The first month of the year is in the fall for the Israelites. He says the, the threshing floor shall be full of wheat because you got rain. I mean, when you don't have rain, uh, your crops die, your cattle uh, die because there's no grass for them to eat, no grain for them to eat, and so you have a famine. And he says in those days, the threshing floor shall be full of wheat, which means the cattle will be fat and there will be plenty of, whether we kill cattle in the millennium or not, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I might have to research that a little bit, but there will. But anyway, there'll be plenty of wheat to eat, uh, and the vats shall be overflow with new wine and oil. So I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts. My great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Now here's the good part of it, and and this is why we know he's speaking of the millennium because he says and. And pray, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wonderful, dealt wonderfully with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame again. And I think there's a spiritual application here for for sure. Uh, you go back in Israel's history, and you remember how they were born as a nation. Uh, I mean, you could say they were born when Jacob had, had the 12 sons, but, but really, where were they born? When they were baptized in the Red Sea, and they came out of the Red Sea, and they crossed over uh, into Sinai, and they were heading to the Promised Land, and they were full of joy. I mean, I don't think it was a happier time in the 
history of Israel than that time after they had Pharaoh's armies had been destroyed and they had gone over into heading to the promised land and uh, they were they they were all excited and about their future and then they came to Kadesh Barnea and they were told to go into the promised land and they refused to go in and that totally changed their history. Now, the Lord knew they were going to do that in his, in his uh, omniscience. He knew that. So this was part of the sovereign will of God. But if they'd gone in, the, their history would have been totally different. But when they did refuse to go in, they lost all of that joy. They lost all of that spiritual fullness that they had at that point because of what? Because of their unbelief. And so there were times in their history where they had these maybe you could call it the sprinklings of spiritual rain. But for most of their history, they lived in a spiritual drought. And uh, that's going to change in the millennium. I mean, it's going to totally change in the millennium. They will never be, they will, the Lord will live in their midst and they will be spiritually blessed and they will know the Lord as they've never known him before. They'll know Jesus Christ as their Messiah uh, they'll know he's their king. They'll put away their idols and their rebellion and their disobedience, and they'll never be put to shame again. They've got a great future ahead of them. And that's what this is about. All of this is about Israel. It's really not about the church. Uh, uh, there's not going to be any revival for the church in the millennium. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be so full of the Holy Spirit, you can't be any fuller of the Holy Spirit then you will be for etern- you're going to be that way for eternity. So there'll never be, when, when you pass from this life, or we're raptured into, uh, the church is raptured and brought into the presence of God, and we're given those shining white garments, from that point on, hey, we're full of the Spirit for eternity. There's no such thing as a revival for us after, after uh, the millennium, and so, or after the great tribulation, and after the rapture. So, They've got a great future ahead of them, and now he's going to step back, and he's going to, and this is where I say really chapter 10 should pick up at verse number 2. He's going to step back and tell them just why they had these wars and famines and spiritual dryness in their history. Look at verse number 2. He says, for the idols speak delusion. I mean, their number one sin was idolatry. And what's at the root of idolatry? unbelief. It's at the root of every sin. And so because they failed to obey God there early on, they failed to believe God early on, and so they failed to obey God early on, then they had this history of spiritual dryness. And, and uh, what does that lead to when you've got spiritual dryness and you're seeking the Lord and but you're not seeking the Lord on his terms so the Lord doesn't answer you? The Lord says you seek me with all your heart then you'll find me. If you, and that means you seek him on his terms, you'll find him. And, but they, that's a lot of work, and they didn't want to do that work. And so what they did, they built their own idols, and they began to worship idols. Unbelief will always lead to some form of idolatry. Even the atheist is an idolater. I mean, he has, his, his God is himself. Everybody has a God. And so unbelief in Jehovah God leads to some type of idolatry, and then it gets worse, it gets into witchcraft, and because idols are, who's at the root of idolatry? Satan and his demons, and so uh, the next thing he says, the diviners envision lies. In other words, what they tell you, the prophecies that they give you are lies. They tell, they have dreams, and they tell you about those dreams, but they're false dreams. 
They comfort in vain. Therefore the people win, they meander their way like sheep. But they're in trouble because there is no shepherd. So instead of trusting God and living for God and being blessed, they trusted in their idols. And then they begin to look to the occult for guidance and direction. And uh, when that happened, they were given these false dreams. They were given... uh, they were given no comfort. They comfort in vain. And so they meandered like lost sheep without a shepherd, and they were all but destroyed. I, mean, you, I was reading Jeremiah today, the last part of Jeremiah, and he was talking about the remnant that went back to Babylon under, when Jeconiah was taken captive. 4,300 people total. 4,300 people. Now, there was another remnant that went too, but 4,300 people, the rest of them were destroyed. It's pretty, it wasn't much of a remnant. And so, uh, and the reason that that was happening, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, they had priests and they had leaders, but they were leading them into idolatry and they were leading them into divination and really into demonic activity. And so, God was more angry with the priests and leaders than he was with the people. Look at verse number three. He says, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the goat herds or goat herders. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them as his royal horse in the battle. Now that's an interesting passage, a verse right there. I will punish the goat herds. What's he mean by goat herd? Have you ever heard of a Judas goat? You know what? A, if you've ever been around a, you know, a slaughterhouse, you know what a Judas goat is. Judas goat takes the sheep, and the sheep, sheep follow the, the uh, goat all the way into the slaughterhouse, and then the goat takes a right turn, and they go straight in there, and they're slaughtered. And they use that, that goat to lead the, the sheep to slaughter. Uh, and the sheep are foolish enough to follow the goat, and they're slaughtered. And so these leaders and these priests had become like goat herds, like Judas goats. They were, instead of leading the people to the Lord of hosts, they were leading the people to slaughter. But the Lord of hosts says, hey, I'm going to visit my people. I'm going to visit my flock, and I'm going to become their shepherd, and they are going to be my people. And uh, when they're like my people, they'll be like a uh, prize, the prized horse of a great king instead of a bunch of stupid sheep. And then listen to how he's going to do that. And this is really a great prophecy right here in verse number four when you dig into it. He says, from him comes the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. Tent peg is really not a good translation there. The nail. If you got the King James, it's the nail. From him comes the nail. Now, you can translate that tent, tent peg or you can translate it nail, but in, and tent pegs in that culture were like a very large nail, much like the nail that was used to crucify Jesus Christ. So, so, but for us, I think nail works better. He says, he says, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, and from him, every ruler in one is really the better translation there. 
one, every rule in one. Now, who's this about? Who's this prophecy about? You ought to figure it out pretty quickly. It's about none other than Jesus Christ. And so the hymns there really should be capitalized because the hymn is Jehovah. From Jehovah comes the cornerstone. From Jehovah comes the tent peg. From Jehovah comes the battle bow. And from Jehovah comes every rule in one. Uh, so no doubt, again, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ because first of all, look at the cornerstone. Who's the foundational stone of our faith? None other than Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone of a true relationship with the Lord. You can't, there's, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. You cannot enter into a relationship or build a relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ. It begins with him. He's that first stone that is laid in your relationship with God. Uh, Isaiah spoke of Jesus as a cornerstone in Chapter 28 of Isaiah, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And Peter builds on that, and he, he quotes that verse, and then he builds on that verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So in the end, Jesus, who is rejected by the Jews at his first coming, will become the foundation of their faith, or really all faith for both the Jew and the Gentile. So we have his first coming in this, this first from Jehovah. From Jehovah comes the cornerstone. Then the second from Jehovah we get, from Jehovah comes the nail. Now, the nail, the definition of this, this Hebrew word, is a nail used to hang something. What a picture we get right there. I mean, and, and really, it's a nail used to hang a picture, if you want to be even more specific. So remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 14. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen a picture of the Father. Uh, Jesus is the best picture of the Father in his love that we possibly can have. And here he is, nailed to a cross, hanging there for all to see. Uh, uh, and and uh, for all to look at. I'm reminded of what Jesus told Nicodemus. He told him, uh, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son, so must the son of Man be lifted up. Like, I mean, what was the serpent lifted up? He was lifted up and hung there like a picture for them to look at. And they were to gaze on that picture. And by that picture, they were healed of those snake bites. Jesus says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever looks at him and gazes on him and believes on him shall have everlasting life. And so uh, there he is. From Jehovah comes the nail. From Jehovah also comes the battle bow. Now we go to the second coming. Uh, Jesus is the battle bow. Uh, in the end times, uh, when the great tribulation is about to end, Jesus is going to come to this earth and he's going to defeat all the armies of the world. And then we move on to the millennium. From Jehovah comes uh, the one who is the ruler of all. The one who all rule is given to. 
Uh, Isaiah in chapter 9 says the government will be upon his shoulder. And I love this part. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I mean, there will be no place on earth. There will be no place in the universe that Jesus is not in control of, that he doesn't rule. And he will rule in peace and righteousness and there will be no end of his peace. No matter how far away from his throne in Jerusalem you get, it will be a place of peace. It will be a place of righteousness because he will expand his rule throughout uh, the world forever. And that's, there will be no end, which means it will never end. That peace will go out as far as it can go, and it will never end. That righteousness will go out as far as, it, as you can go, and, and that righteousness will never end. And when Jesus sends Jesus, I mean, when Jehovah sends Jesus Christ as that battle bow, uh, then the Israelites are going to be blessed. They're going to be really glad to see him when he comes because the Antichrist is going to be worse than, worse than Hitler ever thought about being. He's going to try to destroy the Jewish nation. He's going to be hunting down the Jews to destroy them. But when the Lord comes, hey, that battle's going to turn. That battle's going to turn, and listen to what he says in verse number 5. He said, they, Israel shall be like mighty men uh, who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets, in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on the horses will be put to shame. And then he says in verse number 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will, when, he, when he speaks of Judah, he's speaking of the southern kingdom. When he speaks of Joseph, who were Joseph's two sons? Ephraim, which represents the northern kingdom, and Manasseh, which represents uh, Jordan, the area in, in, that's now modern-day Jordan. If you look at a map of the land that was promised to Abraham uh, in that covenant of land, that everlasting covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, uh, it includes Jordan. And so uh, it incl includes the area that Manasseh... Uh, uh, and, and it includes the northern kingdom of Ephraim. So he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I, how can he do that? For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. I'm going to hear them cry out. You remember how uh, in the days of before Moses became their deliverer, they cried out for deliverance. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their cry. I mean, I, I, I think the Lord put them in a position. He knows how to put you in a position where you'll cry out. But he put them in a, as a nation in a position where they cried out to the Lord for, for deliverance, and uh, they got Moses. Well, they're going to get someone. In this day, in the Great Tribulation, they're going to get someone much greater than Moses to deliver them. They're going to get the Lord himself. And they're going to have a great victory over their uh, enemies, and then they're going to be brought back into the land. He says in verse number 7, Those of Ephraim shall be like mighty men, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Not the kind of wine, not the kind of merriment produced by alcohol, but the kind of merriment that doesn't dissipate. Uh, spiritual merriment, spiritual joy. They're going to rejoice as if, hey, almost as if they're drunk. Yes, their children shall see it, and they're going to be glad, and their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. 
And so there's going to be this great day of joy uh, in the millennium when this great tribulation ends. And then when the tribulation is over, the Lord's going to whistle for them. I like that. You hear the trumpets, but uh, during the great tribulation, the trumpets are over after the great tribulation. The trumpet that took us to heaven's gone. The, uh, we're, we all come back with the Lord, and then the Lord is going to whistle for his people. He's going to whistle for them, and he's going to gather them, for I will redeem them. Now, that's really interesting to me. I mean, here's this obstinate people, this lost group of people, and I don't care, you know, there will be a few of them that become part of the church. I mean, I believe there will be Jews and Gentiles in the church, obviously. But as a nation, we're talking about the nation now, uh, the, the Jewish nation is almost anti-Christ. Again, I, I've said this before, they certainly like the tourist business coming from the Christians, and they like the support that, we, that America gives them, at least the evangelical church in America gives them. But basically... They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want Jesus as their Messiah. But in that day, they will. And it's all grace. I mean, they don't, they don't suddenly get smart about this thing. Things don't get so bad that they suddenly cry out to the Lord. I mean, during, during World War II, things were about as bad as they could get for the Jewish nation. And they, and, and they cried out to the Lord, but they didn't cry out to Jesus. They didn't cry out, we want Jesus as our Messiah. But in that day, uh, he says, I will redeem them. And it's all grace. It's all grace. Our redemption's the same way. It's all grace. It's election and it's grace. It requires choice. When, when God pours out his spirit on them in the millennium, they're going to have to make a choice. But they're going to make that choice because they're going to have the spirit of God in them. The same way you and I made that choice. Uh, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. It, it, it just, it, see, that's how you and I got there. If we're there, that's how we got there. And they shall increase as, as they once increased. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return also. I will bring, also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Remember, I mentioned Lebanon earlier. Until no more room is found for them. I mean, it's going to be, that area is going to be full of Jews uh, during the millennium. Because they'll all be coming home to Israel. Imagine, I mean, if you're an Israelite and, and you're part of the people of God and you, your Messiah is living there now, you know your Messiah is Jesus Christ and he's God Almighty sitting on a throne uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, you're going to want to be part of that. And you're going to have a right because you've got citizenship in that land. So you're going to have a right as a Jew to live in that land. Then in verse number 11, he says he will... And this is an interesting verse right here. And I think this is, this is a uh, prophecy about what has to transpire before all of the things we just looked at transpire. Uh, he says, the Lord Jehovah shall pass through this... I, I'm sorry... Uh, yeah, he, he shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. Now, in prophecy, you're going to see this later on in Revelation. Often the sea refer, is a prophetic, is symbolic, let me put it that way, of the sea of people, the sea of nations. Like the Antichrist, he comes out of the sea. He doesn't literally come out of the sea, out of the Mediterranean Sea. He comes out of 
the sea of people, out of the nations. Uh, just from nowhere he seems to come. Well, what he's saying here, the Lord is going to pass through the sea with affliction. He's going to strike the waves of the sea and the depths of the river shall drive. Now, this sounds a lot like those trumpets that we've been looking at in Revelation when that star hits, you know, something similar. Then the pride of Assyria will be brought down. And what's the pride of Assyria? Well, the Assyria was, was a lot of the pagan worship or a lot of the pagan gods that were worshipped by Israel came out of Assyria. And so those pagan gods are going to be brought down. That's one interpretation. I think I'll stick with that instead of confuse the matter. And the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So Egypt is going to be brought down. But there's something symbolic there too. Because in the Bible, in Scripture, Egypt is almost always symbolic of the world. The secular pagan world system and that has ruled this world or seemed to have ruled this world throughout our history. There's always been some type of pagan empire uh, and a secular empire uh, ruling our world. Well, that's, that scepter is going to depart from them. Uh, after the Great Tribulation, there will be no such thing as a secular government again. No such thing. If you don't like dictators, you're not going to like living here because there will be a dictator, a benevolent dictator. But Jesus Christ is a despot. He will rule uh, with a rod of iron and it, things will be his way or the highway. And so if you don't like that, you're not going to want to be here. I'm looking forward to it, I can tell you right now. Because I know the Lord, and I know the Lord always does good for his people, always means well for his people. He always wants the best for his people. Then he concludes it in verse number 12. So I will strengthen them. He's talking about the people of Israel, and really the, the people who are left in this world. In the Lord. And watch what he says. And they shall walk up and down everywhere they go in his name says the Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name above all names. What he's saying right here in verse number 12 is that in that day, everything will be holy. Everything we do will be done in the name of the Lord. It'll be done the, the Lord's way. There will be nothing that we do on this earth that is secular. There will be nothing that we do on this earth that is pagan, uh, Everything will be done in the name of the Lord. Everything will be done for the glory of the Lord. Everything will be done the Lord's way. And that's why we will have peace without end and righteousness without end. Can't wait. I don't know about you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ Lord I just thank you that that uh, you've called me and and uh, chosen me before the foundation of the world and I'm sure everybody in here who's born again it has that same uh, gratitude in their hearts Lord uh, we have such a hope as ho great as the hope is for Israel our hope is even greater as your children we look forward to that day when we rule and reign with you on this earth. But Lord, in the meantime, help us also to see the bitter part of your coming. 
this part where uh, this world is judged and, and uh, the wicked are destroyed. And, and Lord, wicked, we know, means anyone who doesn't know you. They're destroyed, and Lord, then they face the great white throne judgment seat, and then you cast them into utter darkness, into hell. Lord, forever away from you. But Father, we just ask that you, uh, we talked about or prayed earlier about maybe a revival, Lord, some type of revival, Lord. Revival's not going to come, Lord, uh, 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 in our own hearts unless we care about others. Help us to care about the lost, Lord. Help us to look at ourselves, Lord, to, to examine our own hearts, to be the kind of people that you can use in these last days. Help us to separate ourselves from this world. Help us to walk as we're going to walk in the millennium and in eternity, Lord, uh, in your name, for your glory. Help us to do that now, Lord, uh, even now, so we can impact those around us. We just ask for that power. We ask for that. Uh, we know that only comes uh, through your presence in our life. So be present, Lord. Help us sense your presence. Help us uh, be overcomers. We just ask that in Christ's name. Amen.